One of the coolest parts about data analytics is how it applies to every domain. Seriously, no matter what industry you're in, data analytics can help that industry. And specifically on my podcast today, we have Serena Huang, who I'm really excited to talk to about people analytics, which is basically how do we use data analytics with people, specifically in the workplace. So it's kind of like human resources, HR data, and combining that with human elements in the workplace. What type of analytics can we find? What type of insights can we find? What type of data is available? And also Serena is an anal analytics executive. So we talk about what makes a good entry level hire, what makes a good data team, and what you can do on your data journey to stand out more in the job process. That sounds good. Let's go ahead and hop into the episode. Welcome to the Data Career Podcast, the podcast that helps aspiring data professionals land their next data job. Here's your host, Avery Smith. You guys, welcome back. I'm so glad that you're here, that you're listening, whether you're doing a run or you're on an errand or you're doing the laundry or you're in the car commuting, whatever. I'm so glad you're here and you're listening. We have a really good episode for you today and I'm really excited for you to learn more about people analytics with Dr. Serena Huang, who has worked for really cool companies like PayPal as an analytics executive. So I know I learned a lot and I know you will learn a lot as well. I want to say thank you for everyone that has left a rating in Spotify and Apple Podcasts as it really helps the show grow, helps people like you find out that this show is pretty awesome and it helps me to stay encouraged to keep making these episodes. It actually, I did the math, it costs around $600 a month to keep this podcast going without anyone's time. That's just like all the editing, the software, the publication, all that stuff. So it is quite a bit every month to keep this going. And all you can do to keep it free is hit that subscribe button and to leave a rating and review. If you guys have already done so, thank you so much. And I know you guys are gonna enjoy this episode. So let's go ahead and take a listen. All right, welcome back to the Data Career Podcast. I'm so excited for my guest today. It is Dr. Serena Huang. She's a people analytics expert working with companies like PayPal, Coke, Kraft Heinz. And she's also a LinkedIn learning instructor and LinkedIn top voice in 2023 and also a new founder. So Serena, welcome to the podcast. We're excited to have you. Thank you so much. Excited to be here today as well. Yeah. So uh, a little bit about your journey. You have all these really neat uh, experiences that you've done in your career. You've worked for some pretty big companies, done some pretty cool things. You have a PhD as well, which is really impressive. But you specifically kind of work in a field that we hear a little bit about in data analytics, but not too much. And that is people analytics. So I was hoping you could tell us a little bit about what people analytics is. People ask me this question all the time, and I wish I have like some official <laughs> standard answer, um, but the field has continued to evolve. So every year or so, I actually update my definition based on what I have learned. Every time I talk to a CEO and I ask them a question of what is your most important asset? guess what they say? It's the people. Mm. Okay. It's not the building that's sitting empty these days. It's not the machinery they own. It's their people. So if people is the most important asset, the board of directors are very interested and investors as well in the return on this asset, right? So ROA is probably a metric that you have heard in other parts of your life. And people analytics helps you really maximize the return on this most important asset to a company. And that, if that sounds too difficult and too over the top, think about it in easier terms, like using data analytics to improve 
everything when it comes to talent in an organization, from hiring to retention to promotions to diversity and inclusion. Those are all areas where people analytics cover. So it's broad, but it's also very niche at the same time. Okay, so people analytics is basically using data to protect a company's number one asset, which is their people. Yep. The different subgroups might be recruiting and hiring, you know, promotion, retention, keeping people at the job, and diversity. Is that kind of a, a fair summary? Yes, definitely. Okay. Now that's really interesting. And I totally understand that having, you know, a company's people be the number one asset. And you definitely want to make data-driven decisions when it comes to all of your assets, including the people. Can you tell us a little bit more? Like I'm just imagining, you know, when I worked for ExxonMobil, you know, part of their hiring team or recruiting team, like what goes into like what type of data sets do people have for like hiring data sets or like recruiting data sets? Yeah. So if you think about yourself, when you have gone through an application process, right, what did you submit? Probably your resume at some point. Hopefully no one asks for cover letters anymore, but some do. And then at some point, there might be some background checks on your you know, education and your previous jobs. A lot of that get entered into the company system. And then sometimes people have really structured interviews where people on the panel actually take notes on you. Those data could be stored somewhere as well, including technical assessments and things like that. Not every company does that, of course, but sometimes they do, and it could be in the system that really started with the first moment you apply, hit that apply button and start uploading documents. And then once you are hired, right, there's also, you know, now we know how long it took you to get here, right? What's the interview date, you know, and what was your hire date? Uh, what was the day of your application? Something that a lot of recruiting teams will measure is something called time to hire. Right. Uh, LinkedIn actually just published their time to hire data. It's very interesting. You can see how long it takes by discipline it takes to get a job. So from the moment you start the job search to the moment that you are hired, um, obviously that varies. So some, some fields like consulting have one of the longer time to hire. Why is that? Well, consulting is known for you know, really strict and rigorous process when it comes to interviews. There are case studies, there are rounds and rounds of interviews to make sure that consultants are top-notch and I can say that's true from my experience I was a consultant at one point myself and and in other fields it might be faster so time to hire could be one of the metrics um, that you ended up having but along the way there's a lot of data collected on each individual candidate uh, to to get there wow okay that's really fascinating so you know, your resume, the questions you answered, the interview process you went through, that's some of the data that might be, you know, used in terms of hiring and, and recruiting analytics. So that's highly unstructured data, that sounds like to me. Like, that's something that, you know, we don't necessarily talk a whole lot in the data community, the difference between structured and unstructured data. You can basically think of structured data as like it fits in a rectangle, like it has rows and it has columns. But it really sounds like a lot of at least the recruiting and hiring data is pretty unstructured, starting with like a resume or text answer to questions. So that does that increase the difficulty of doing these analytics? It does. And this is one of the most common complaints we hear a lot from candidates, right? You've asked for my resume, and then the next step, I have to enter my job history by hand again. Why is that? Well, this is exactly the structure and unstructured data problem. Because the resume is unstructured, a lot of the systems for applicants do not have those smart 
text analytics built in to extract everything from your resume and turn it into, you know, year one to year five, you were at this job at this company. You would think you was able to do that for the most part, but it's so difficult. That's why a lot of systems will actually ask you to tell them from, you know, from your year of graduation to today, fill out the job history that is very painful. This is not to say all hiring systems work that way, but many of them still do, unfortunately. Or sometimes it tries and it makes mistakes. It could make an attempt to parse out your resume into that more structured data and ask you to verify. And because the resumes don't come in standard formats, right? Think about the font that you use. And this is why it's important to try to use standard fonts if you can when you are applying. Uh, don't make it more difficult, right? Use the same dash if you're going to use a dash. Don't use double here and then single there. Um, so basic things so that it can be understood by systems in an easy way. And yeah, that's kind of what goes on behind the scenes a little bit. So next time you're very frustrated with the hiring system, know that it's because of a data challenge of structure you know, versus unstructured data that is so much more difficult to deal with. Yeah, that, that makes sense. That is difficult. Okay. And, and then like in terms of, I'm just thinking of like retention, keeping people on the job, where does that data even come from? Yeah, so it's actually very simple. So we know the moment you enter a company, you have a higher date, right? And then by the time you leave the company, you have some sort of termination date, whether that's you leaving or the company asking you to leave, or maybe there's a restructuring that happened and a particular business unit closed down. So there's kind of basically your start and end date of your employment with the company. That's your tenure within that company. Then you look at across, you know, maybe different groups. percentage of people stay beyond X number of years. That's often of interest. One metric I like to look at and encourage companies to look at that tells you a lot about your onboarding process, your hiring process, something called new hire retention. So you can look at what percentage of your new hires within the first year are still there. If the majority of your new hires are gone by year one, that's probably a bad sign of something going pretty wrong, either in the recruiting process where they were promised something, then show up, they get something different, or your onboarding was so poor that by week three, they haven't received their laptop. They're just sitting around, right? So I give those somewhat as extreme examples, but actually not too extreme because I have seen them happen to candidates and those create really poor experiences and make people want to leave really fast. So look at your new hire retention. That could be a great area to start if you want to make sure you can retain people. And of course, that's not just one of them. You can also look at retention by different demographics, right? We hear a lot about Gen Z and younger millennials jumping from one job to another and not staying longer. That might be true externally. You don't know if that's true for your organization until you take a look at your data. Perhaps your Gen Z are super happy. Right? You have no idea until you look. So one of the beauty about people analytics is that there's now a lot of external research available. People are starting to share a little bit more, but you always have to stay curious and validate with your own data to see what your employees are saying and what they need versus just taking some industry benchmark and assume that is the case for your organization. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. That's actually, now that you mentioned it, 
So I run a data bootcamp called the Data Analytics Accelerator, where we try to do realistic projects based in different industries. And we actually, it's our R module, our R and statistics module. We actually use the IBM attrition data set. Ah. That's kind of famous in the people analytics world. Very familiar. (laughs) Yeah. And I think that's actually the biggest use case of that project is we're trying to figure out if there was like a discretion between ages, like did the company, I can't remember if if the people quit or if they were fired, but the people who exited the company on average, were they younger than the people who stayed at the company and trying to compare, you know, Mm -hmm. what were some of the factors to, to people leaving this company? So that's people analytics basically. Yeah, that's definitely a huge part, including the when you get to more mature analytics, you know, uh, maturity curve, and you get to predictive analytics, right, where you're now not only saying how many people I've lost, but also predicting who is going to leave. You know, if I give you the option, and you're the CEO of a company, say, I can tell you, how many people left and why versus I can tell you who is going to leave and why. Which would you rather know? Yeah, who and why. I, I <laughs> right? So because I can't do anything about the past, yes, you can help inform and that's all great. But most importantly, I want to know for the people I have today, who is at risk and, and intervene um, if it's someone I definitely want to keep or if it's you know a group of people who have important knowledge of my product. And, and I can't lose them because my business will fail, then those are really useful information to have versus just looking in the rear view mirror and, and saying, oh, a bunch of people left and why. <laughs> yeah, that, that doesn't seem very useful. It's like, oh, we lost all our best people. It's like, oh, crap. We want to be able to try to get ahead of that. <laughs> and so really in people yeah. analytics, you know, we look at the four different types of analytics, you know, descriptive, you know, who left, diagnostic, yeah. like why they left. Predictive, being able to predict, you know, who might leave or how many will leave in the future. But then probably that prescriptive of like, how do we, you know, using the data we know, how do we keep our best talent? How do we make our company the best asset it is? So it's it's pretty fascinating, all these different types and and facets of, of people analytics. Now, an interesting title I've heard of recently is a compensation analyst. And to my understanding, they're basically analyzing data off of salaries, like how much people actually get paid. Would you say that also falls underneath people analytics? Oh, good question. It depends. So a lot of organizations have group people analytics with the compensation or sometimes they're called total rewards team where rewards include compensation and benefits. And they could be grouped together as kind of a single center of excellence called it like the numbers people in HR, if you will. So people who touch numbers. Sometimes they sit somewhere else. So it depends on the structure. It may or may not be part of people analytics. I would say that compensation is a data that people analytics team definitely use, but that doesn't mean all compensation professionals should be in people analytics because the skill sets are very different. Ultimately, the compensation analysts are there to make sure people are paid correctly, right? Correctly, meaning, you know, align with market, meaning align with what the company wants to pay them. Not every company has the same pay philosophy, right? And so whatever that philosophy is, along with internal equity and alignment with external market, that's how they do their job. And, you know, I think there's a lot of overlap in terms of skill sets. So I've seen people move in and out from compensation into people analytics and vice versa. So 
So it's interesting, right? It's not the same skill set. And within compensation, purely, there isn't a ton of you know super, I would say, advanced analytics. Like no one. To my knowledge, at least, is like you know by themselves running machine learning model in compensation. But you know, is there a room for that? At least you know basic regression models. Yes, absolutely. And oftentimes, what they actually do is they will hire、uh, external companies to do some sort of audits. And that doesn't mean the compensation team has no internal expertise. Oftentimes, in an audit situation, they just want someone unbiased, someone external to provide. That external view, and that's why. So I've definitely seen a lot of compensation analysts come my way as candidates and say, "Hey, I want to do something much more interesting beyond what I do. Up level my analytic skills, and I want to get into、uh, your organization instead." Okay, interesting. Let's talk a little bit more、uh, about your organization because when you were an analytics executive at PayPal. You actually quadrupled the size of your team in a very short period of、yeah. time, and a lot of our listeners, you know, a lot of people I speak to are they're trying to land their first data job. So I wanted to ask you, what do you feel like makes a good entry level data candidate? Yeah, so I think there are kind of two main skill sets,、um, right, that we look at in the interview process: your technical skills, of course. And then your what I call business skills. I don't like the term soft skills, so I don't use them.、Uh, I call them business skills. So the technical skills really depends on the role. Really, at minimum, you gotta know things like SQL pretty well if you're going to be on my team. So you know, I'll, I'll preface this by saying that not every people analytics team uses the same. Tool set. A lot of times, it depends on you know the existing team what their IT team will support right at the company. Sometimes you don't get to make the call between Power BI and Tableau because you simply already have. Enterprise-wide license to one. So in in other languages, it's a little bit more flexible. But generally, it's often up to the leader of the team、uh, to decide, right, what they want to use, what they're comfortable with. And so SQL is one of the languages that I always interview for. And then if you're more advanced in you know data science, for example, then it's probably Python, potentially R. And then you know, so technical skills very important. And then you know, when it comes to business skills, something I always look for is I'm calling this intellectual curiosity. So intellectual curiosity and actually intellectual humility. Intellectual curiosity means you are constantly you are a curious person, and not just. Curious in general, but you're curious about data analytics.、Okay? You are interested in continuing to grow your skill set, whether it's technical or business. So one of the questions I would ask candidates, and I would continue to ask people on the team, is what's something new you have learned this past week? If someone in data analytics tells me that they haven't learned anything new in the past week, the speed that we're evolving is so fast. That means、um, the person is likely not curious and not for my team. That doesn't mean they're not a good fit for somewhere else. But innovation was always really important to me as a leader when I was leading teams, and so I want people who are naturally curious 
and they're not sitting there waiting for me to tell them to go innovate, waiting for me to tell them to learn something new, right? Waiting for their skill set to be outdated and then learn something. So that's curiosity. And then the curiosity is also really important when it comes to people analytics because data is really messy. The data quality I have seen just recruiting alone is, is a mess because there's a lot of candidates for a job and sometimes things get entered incorrectly. We talked about unstructured data being difficult. So all those mean by the time it gets to the data lake or whatever, you know, storage you have for, for your data, um, it could be really messy and require some cleanup. So anyways, curiosity means you're asking the tough questions, right? When you see something that doesn't seem right, right? Someone who might be paid, um, you know, $2 billion while everyone else in the same job is getting paid 20000 you know, there might be a decimal point that's gone wrong. Maybe it's a currency conversion issue, but you need to be curious enough to ask those questions before you start to generate some sort of chart that incorporates the $2 billion salary in there, right? Um, so that's one example of being curious. Intellectual humility is also really important. That means you need to know and be willing to accept that you are wrong sometimes and that you have something to learn. doesn't matter how educated, where you went to school, how many years of experience you have and, and how high your IQ is. Whatever the situation is, at some point, we are all making some sort of mistakes and that we need to learn from. So having the intellectual humility helps me know that this person is willing to learn from others on the team and willing to learn from, you know, the, the business. One mistake I often see people who come from very impressive backgrounds, uh, whether it's, you know, big companies or Ivy Leagues, and this is not at all a knock on them, is that sometimes they lose the humility. Mm. They lose the humility and they will say, this is how we have done it at company X, enter impressive name, right? This is what I have learned in graduate school, enter impressive school name. And guess what? <laughs> it may not work here. And that's all the stakeholder needs to say to you, or it doesn't work here, even worse, right? And so I never want my team members to be on the receiving end of it's not going to work here, or you know, some form of you don't know what you're talking about and you're simply giving me something that you think will work from your past experience without validating your assumptions. So those two things are really important. And I bring those up on top of your, you know, typical ability to communicate, right? Ability to communicate to technical and non-technical audience. I think those are really basic communication, strong communication skills, stakeholder management, building relationship with people. Those are important business skills. But for me, I think the, like the secret sauce, because I would get upwards of more than a thousand applicants per job that I needed to get to really quickly who are going to be the top candidates and that some of the differentiators, like I said, beyond the basic technical skills, the key business skills are things like curiosity and, and humility. Okay. Awesome. I think those are some really good points. I, I do agree that like, I mean, one thing you have to think about with people analytics in general is due to its unstructured nature of the data that often does make the analysis harder, which usually means you have to have more skills and usually a little bit more difficult tools. Like for example, you know, I mostly teach people how to become data analysts. I tell them all you have to know is Excel, SQL, and then we, we choose to learn Tableau just because it's a little bit more easily available than, than Power BI. But if you're looking at resume data, 
you're going to have a hard time doing any analysis of resume data with Excel or just with SQL. Yes. Like, like you need some sort of tool like Python or R to actually get it into a little bit more of a, a structured place. Now, maybe someone else on the team yeah. has done that, but um, that is a really good point. When you're working with more unstructured data, you typically need a more of a coding heavy tool like Python to do some of the heavy lifting yeah, for you. Definitely. And I think it depends on the team that you're on too, right? Where, you know, if on a larger team where people have more specialized roles and that's the trade-off between joining a larger team versus a smaller team, right? On a larger team, you might have a dedicated data scientist who can do all the text analytics for the whole team. And maybe that's part of their job. Maybe you have one dedicated person just doing text analytics and they're an expert in that field. That means everyone else can just say, well, I need X, Y, and Z. And the super data scientist who's great at text analytics will help us. That's one possibility. So I don't think we can all become experts in everything. That's not realistic. But in a, on a smaller team, you might have to play a generalist role, uh, role where you are doing Excel, Power BI, and potentially a little bit of Python and SQL as well. So it just really depends on the structure and the scope um, of, of the role. Yeah. And with that, I wanted to talk to you since you did grow this team, you know, quadruple this team size and you have worked as an executive. I want to talk about what you think makes a good data team. I guess first starting with what you think constitutes a data team. Like what are the different roles potentially in a team? Yeah, sure. So every team, of course, is is different. But in general, from the teams that I've led, at least there's always a set of um, roles. I'll call them consultants. They are customer facing, you know, at analysts who are great with data analytics, but most importantly, they are there to translate a business problem into something data analytics can solve. That's their job. So think about in a restaurant setting, they are the servers, if you will. So they go to the customer, they ask what you want, and then they go back to the kitchen and then bring out the dish. And then we also have on the more technical side, anywhere from data engineers uh, who will turn unusable raw data into beautiful tables <laughs> for the rest of the team um, to then kind of data analysts that could be either people with BI skills, right? They do visualization, they do reporting to maybe someone who can do a little bit more than that, right? Basic analytics, not machine learning type, but some basic modeling. All the way to data scientists who, you know, like are, are not always that good with SQL, but they are experts in Python. They know how to build models that perform well. So those are kind of the combination. But over time, I've started to need additional roles to make sure the my center of excellence, if you will, is running smoothly. So uh, over time, I added things like a storytelling and visualization experts, mm. right? So data storytelling is is all the rage and there's gazillion books and YouTube videos on, on this topic, but very few people actually do it super well. So it's a skill set that we can always continue to improve and in people analytics too. How do you tell a story about recruiting data that will make the leadership team want to take action as opposed to just saying, eh, 
okay, that's kind of interesting and move on, right? That's the, the worst nightmare of you doing all the work and no one does anything. And I think the power that the, the key to unlock that is good data storytelling. So that means, you know, not only translating the, the results into something that can be understood and actionable, but also good graphics along the way and presentation and so on. The other role I also added that is not seeing a lot is a product manager. So I wanted, you know, because we were, you know, a smaller team at the beginning, we wanted to be all about scale. We wanted things to be scalable. And, and instead of thinking of dashboards as just dashboards, they are products. And we also built some internal apps and things like that. So these are all products of the people analytics team. And eventually we needed a product manager to create a roadmap and make sure they're talking to the right stakeholders and so on. So it's definitely mature over time. But those are, I think, the, the key roles that, that you can definitely see from consultant to data engineers, data analysts, BI visualization specialists, data scientists, all the way to you know, product manager, visualization experts. So, yeah. Yeah. I think something that you said that really resonated with me, and, th- and thanks for that breakdown, was you, know, you created these new roles. You mentioned there's like the consultant, the analyst, the scientist, the engineer, right? But you've worked at a lot of different companies for you know, a lot of different years. And I, I wanted to get your thoughts on one thing I've noticed in the data field is that titles sometimes don't really mean anything especially from company to company and year after year. So I wanted to hear your thoughts on like what different data roles and titles have existed and, you know, how you've seen them change year after year. Yeah, I think there are some data analytics roles that have had the same title for decades. Like that role has existed in one shape or form from even before Excel existed, probably. I don't know what that year is, but all the way to, you know, data scientists, right? There's kind of different versions of data scientists now um, that's more focused um, to now we're seeing a lot of very focused AI specific roles, right? Like AI, um, you know, uh, ethical, responsible AI specialists, for example, that probably didn't exist 20 years ago. And we've seen them evolve over time. So my, gosh, my advice for if you are looking for a job and you've had some non-standard, I'll call it, job titles, is to standardize them, right? Standardize them so that it would make sense to every single company that you're talking to on your LinkedIn profile and on your resume, both, so that it doesn't come off as like, oh, what is a data ninja, right? Like that sounds cool, but I I kid you not. (laughs) And so, you know, make sure it's translatable, right? Make sure it's translatable to broader crowd. And then if you are looking for people to hire and you're creating job descriptions, you're like, should I make it really interesting so you will stand out or should I make it very general uh, so people can understand? I think there's a fine line, right? Like for me, when I was hiring, uh, you know, data storytelling, I meant for it to be cool and attractive, right? I meant for that to grab attention of, um, you know, this is a director level role. I know that's going to grab a lot of applicants already, but on top of that, it is like newly created, never been done before, but then you know, but then, you know, I'm very specific in the skill sets and like, you need to know how to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so it's a fine line, depends on what you're doing. But as a candidate, you definitely want to make sure you standardize. And then uh, someone who is posting jobs, that consider the trade-offs of who you are attracting that ultimately will give you who you need. 
I think that's really good advice. You know, when I worked at ExxonMobil, one of my positions was an optimization engineer, which is really not mm. uh, a title you hear much of. And I was making, you know, machine learning models. So can I just call myself a data scientist? When I worked for a biotech company, my role was a, a junior chemometrician. And it's like, you don't hear that role very often. So it's like, can I just say that's like a data analyst role or something like that? Sure. And I think so like inside of the data world, I think that's true that sometimes these titles get a little bit wonky and we need to simplify them right. on our resume, simplify them on our LinkedIn. But even in whatever role you're in right now, sometimes simplifying the name of your official bill can be really beneficial. I, I have a student inside of the boot camp right now who I don't remember his official title, but he's basically... It was like on his LinkedIn and on his resume, when I went and did the one-on-one -on -one resume review and the one-on-one -on -one LinkedIn review, it was like painter delivery specialist or something like that. Okay. And I was like, okay, I don't think you want to stay in the painting industry necessarily. And like, I don't really know what this role does. So like, can we just simplify this to like operations specialist or like something right. that like makes it a little bit more general people are going to recognize what it is versus like, I don't know what the heck this specific job actually does. So I think people can really take that to heart. That definitely. And then if I could add one more, this is on the other extreme, right? Of people wanting to sound better, or maybe they sometimes have, are working in a job that they think deserve a higher title than they have been given at the company. And they decided that since no one is checking up on my LinkedIn profile, I'm just going to call myself something else. I would say be very careful with that because the data analytics world is not that big. And I've definitely had those, you would think reference checks and whatnot are not happening anymore, but I've definitely received texts. DM, phone calls, emails from people asking, like, this seems like a higher level than the person's experience, you know, re really show. Does it, we just wanted to check, maybe you guys call it different things at your company. So I've definitely answered those calls and, and make sure that you don't make that mistake of getting to the final stage, working so hard, and then having something that is sounding like you are lying on your profile on LinkedIn that caused you the job. So yeah, it's a small world, smaller than you would think. I think one time I had interview for a role and I was about to be like my first boss's uh, one over one. So <laughs> you just never know. It's a very small and world. Do you think that's more true in both more senior roles and larger companies? Would you say that's true? Yes. And no, yes, because uh, one, it, it might be hard to check, right? But like sometimes you suddenly see, you know, maybe there are two people with very similar roles. Like, okay, the company should only have one CFO. Oh, hmm. yeah. There seems to be two. <laughs> that doesn't make sense. Yeah. So sometimes it can be super obvious like that where you want to be careful while other times it might be hard to check. So in a large company, you might think no one is checking up on you, but, you know, it, it, it happens. In a smaller company, sometimes because the growth is so fast that you really take on additional responsibilities. I think, you know, if I could, coach and mentor people again who had that problem i always say look this is a time for you to reflect on whether or not you're in the right role if you're doing that before you go and update you know either out of anger resent or whatever insert emotion um on linkedin talk to your boss 
right? Think about whether or not you should be promoted instead, or you should look for another role because the company is not valuing you.、Um, and ask yourself those tough questions because you know updating that LinkedIn might make you feel good for a little bit, but you get no pay increases, you get no recognition, and and ultimately it might cost you something at the end because it's not going to match your company record. Think about whether or not that's actually a sign for you to、uh, speak to your boss about promotion or.、Um, Um, look somewhere else. Okay, awesome. Well, Serena, this has been really good. Any other advice you'd give to specifically entry level data professionals, people trying to pivot their careers into the data field? Yeah, I gosh, experiment as much as you can.、Um, I have learned so much from doing things that I ended up really disliking. Is equally informative as you know landing something that I really enjoy. So make sure when you are. In your twenties, use that time to experiment. By the time you get to me, my thirties, it's a little bit harder. It's not hard. I would say it's more costly, right? Like it's more costly to have to start over、uh, at the bottom of another organization. Like、right? it's the salary differential is higher, and then definitely find a, as many. Mentors along the way as you can, who are well, you know, who are a few years ahead of you, and can tell you how the world really works. And and I think the discipline, maybe the third, is if you can try different industries and disciplines of data analytics. It's fascinating. I did a short project in supply chain. It was like logistic type work, and I realized I could do the work. But it was not very interesting for me. So you know, like like I said, this is about gathering data on yourself as well and figuring out what you truly enjoy and what makes you come alive, right? Like ask those simple questions. Is there a particular project that really brings you a smile and you want to do more of that? What does that look like so that you can have a long and fulfilling career in data analytics? Awesome, Serena. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. We really appreciate it. Of course. Of course, thanks so much for having me. You're welcome to follow me on LinkedIn or check out my website. It's datawithserena.com. Hopefully, you leave this episode feeling a lot more confident about people analytics, and maybe you can become a people data analyst or an HR data analyst or something else. If you want help on your journey, in fact, if you want a project about people analytics and HR data. Plus eight other projects to put on a beautiful portfolio. I highly recommend you check out my program, the Data Analytics Accelerator. If you enjoy this podcast, you're likely to enjoy the bootcamp as well. I'll have some links in the description down below for you guys to check it out. And as always, good luck on your data journey, and I'm here to help. Have a good one, everyone.